You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, uh, since we didn't get our show in last week, we got a lot of shit going on this week. A lot of shit. Hashtag lot of shit going on. Which is, And look, I'm going to take the heat for this. It was my fault that we canceled the show last week. I had to go on vacation with my family. Kind of a, what I would describe as a classic Ben Folks type situation, but... This well, time I was to blame. I want to surprisingly noted for the record that when we were emailing back and forth about this, and you were saying like, "Okay, well, you didn't leave until Sunday, like at noon or something," and I said, "Hey, well, I leave Sunday morning. We could there's an event Saturday night. We could record a podcast on Sunday morning." You sent me back a gif of the lady saying, "Ain't nobody got time for that," which was the the truth, the absolute truth. I mean. I assume that when your family goes on vacation, you don't handle any of the packing, logistical planning that has to go into it. You just sit on a couch drinking three fingers of whiskey and smoking a cigar, waiting for your wife to come in and I'm in, say it's I'm time warming for up you the car. to get in your booster seat. I'm warming up the car six hours beforehand. Sitting out there smoking a cigarette, right. listening to uh, the 90s on 9 on L- XM Satellite listen Radio. Listening to my tapes. Listen to my Aerosmith tapes. Yeah. Ain't nobody got time for that. So here we are this week. Right, Ben? I guess in full effect. And in fact, as a way of making amends this week to our listening audience that was left in the lurch last week, we're going to do something we've never really done before. And that is a a three round yet supersized, we think, episode of the co-main event podcast. That's right, because there's a lot of different topics to cover. I mean, we could have gone five rounds here, but also there's a lot of different topics that demand different levels of attention. So we figured, you know what, we got a lot of good listener mail why don't we just dive into a whole bunch of listener mail to cover a whole bunch of stuff and then get into our regular three rounds? So uh, depending on how long this goes, this episode might be split into two parts for your downloading pleasure, uh, or it might just be one long-ass co-main event podcast. We don't know. We'll have to see. It's a journey for all of us, We're really. playing it by ear. Yeah. We got music again this week from our colleague in the MMA media, Eric Fontanez. You can find his writing over at bloodyelbow.com. And if you like what you hear, you can find more of his songs, his beats, his tracks, his dope tracks, Ben, over at soundcloud.com slash Eric Fontanez. Wait, what about, he had a thing, right? He had a name that... His stage name is Nameless with one S. Right. But his SoundCloud page is just slash Eric Fontanez. Okay. Which, if you ask me... Maybe he could just ditch the nameless name. I don't yeah. know. I mean, we're not here to tell the guy what to do. Right? No, but we are here to offer a lot of unsolicited advice, clearly. <laughs> to everyone and on all topics. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, well, they're really doing it. And in round number two, remember when we thought the lead up for Chael Sonnen versus Vanderlei Silva was just going to be crazy? Did you forget that that fight is happening this weekend? Because I almost did. And in round number three, the Mixed Martial Arts Journalists Association is a reality. You have questions. We have answers, probably. Uh, all that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Just getting right into it. 
yeah. this week because we got a lot of ground to just cover. dive in first question this week comes to us from anders jensen did you google that at all no i can get on it that sounds though i'm gonna say uh, plays defense for tottenham forward for newcastle i don't know you figure it out i'll read the uh, email he writes, I'm a big fan of the Super Samoan, but am I the only one who feels like this was a weird and kind of anticlimactic end to an awesome fight? I'm not saying that the result would have been any different, uh, but haven't we seen guys come back from worse than whatever situation ended this fight? I know that Derek Lewis looked like a guy who is just waiting to get himself knocked out, but you could argue that he did defend himself as well as his stamina allowed him to. Please discuss. Now, Ben, good, obviously... Good question from Danish screenwriter Anders Jensen. Okay, we got to get in the, the... That could actually be him for for all we know it <laughs> could be Danish yes. screenwriters they probably got lots of time for podcasts uh we got to get in the way back machine for this one because like we said it's been a couple of weeks since we watched ufc fight night 110 where mark hunt uh defeated Derek lewis in the heavyweight main event there uh and this is one where Derek lewis showed up and looked like he was ready to go about 10 minutes maybe <laughs> yeah okay well uh hurt his back Let, let's say yeah in his defense he said he had a back injury maybe suffered during the fight but Reports said, indicated it's a lingering back issue that's been hampering him for a while. Right. And if we're, you know, we might as well take him at his word on that. And I don't know if you've ever had like a lower back injury, but it can be quite debilitating uh, if that happens to you. And it's also one of those things where when you hurt it once, you're likely to hurt it again. Um, so if that was really what was going on, that would, would explain some of what we saw uh, because it seems like. He had he had a little something for Mark Hunt in the first round. I thought this started well for Derek Lewis, yeah. and I put it on Twitter, and I was surprised by the negative responses I got, and I I was left to, uh, get, like deduce that either I had seen watched something different than what everyone else had watched, or the MMA Twitter's love for Mark Hunt just runs true red American blood. Well, I thought he had some bright moments in the first round, but then. From kind of the second round on, you see him just consistently getting trapped against that fence and not having a whole lot to answer with. And you could see when Mark Hunt gradually saw that Derek Lewis was not coming back at him with a whole lot, he just kind of used that pressure to gradually break him. Uh, and I, I mean, I see what Danish screenwriter and director uh, Anders Jensen is w saying here. Would we be familiar with any of his works? I don't know. I mean, how many Danish screenwriters do you feel like you know? How, as far as you, for all you know, I could have a, an encyclopedic knowledge of Danish screenwriting. Not enough, apparently, to know that uh, he was one. So he did uh, Ernst Ock Eset. Oh, yeah. Das ist mein Lieblingsfilm. Um, also, apparently, wrote a film called In China They Eat Dogs, which I, I want to see that. Okay, well, let's. I'm going to check that one out. Yeah, that's uh, about enough. Uh, um, but, I mean, I, I think. The question is, what did we really, did we, did we want to see Derek Lewis get absolutely decapitated before we were ready to stop someone? Right. You didn't hear him complaining. No, he, he failed the what the fuck test, right? In I mean, fact, he, like, his response to this stoppage was sort of like, yeah, okay, yes. Yeah, I was done. Yep, good. Yeah, and I mean, I see what you're saying that, hey, it did seem like kind of an anticlimactic end, but, it, that to me was one the referee doing one of the jobs we want the referee to do, which was seeing when the fight is over and not, you know, standing there like Emperor Commodus being like, okay, finish him. Uh, you know, go ahead and do this, the satiate everybody's bloodlust, Mark Hunt. We don't really need that. Uh, and I think we can't really have it both ways in the sport if we're going to complain about late stoppages or guys taking beatings that they don't need to take uh, and also complain just because it felt like we didn't quite see. Like, we didn't meet the violence quotient. 
Right. I'd, I'd rather see an early stoppage than a late one, especially uh, when you got heavyweights out there. And, and I guess especially, especially when you got heavyweights like Mark Hunt and Derek Lewis out there who are both just trying to scramble all the brains they possibly can in their opponent. That's sort of their game plan. Uh, and Mark Hunt ends up ultimately winning this thing by fourth round TKO. Uh, and then, Ben, probably the most surprising thing that happened at this fight night card uh, was a Derek Lewis comes out and and we think we are left to take him at his word for now i suppose that uh this is it for him probably is probably what he said. probably it for him i don't believe it you would be you would have history on your side let's just say that <laughs> especially when you retire immediately after a loss already i'm my skepticism meter has gone up this one has a lot of the earmarkings of the false retirement if when you throw the word probably in there meter going up even higher uh then when i remember wait a minute weren't you just saying you were going to take a good long break and you didn't want to hear from anybody managers or trainers of the ufc or anybody uh and then you ended up like five months later in a fight with mark hunt that to me seems like maybe this is a, a pattern in your life where right after a fight you think this is stupid why am i even doing this i need a long break everybody leave me alone and then you know a couple weeks at home and you think all right, let's see. New Zealand sounds nice this time of year. Let me get out there. Baby's crying, doors slamming. I mean, I feel you. I, I'm i not saying I can't understand where that might come from. I, I mean, I remember having an office job with the IFL, and you'd think like, okay, the travel's kind of annoying, and then you'd be in the office three days listening to people chew their Doritos next to you in, in the cubicle next door, and you think, where are we going next? We're going to Chicago? Good. Let's go. Let's get on a plane. I mean, uh, hypothetically, though, if Derek Lewis sticks to this, uh, that he's done in the cage, maybe we have a situation where the Black Beast is the candle who that burns twice as bright for, <laughs> okay. for the MMA fans, right? Because we all agree that Derek Lewis uh, w was pitching us something that we were buying. Yeah. Right? A popular guy, uh, good on social media, kind of understood the promotional side of the game, and yet has this six-fight win streak that started in October of 2015 and culminated with the KO of Travis Brown in February of this year. Uh, then he gets TKO'd by Mark Hunt. Like, if this was the run for Derek Lewis, uh, a meteoric rise and sudden end for the for the Black Beast. What does he do now that he's like 32? I assume Derek Lewis could have some prospects out there if he if he wants to go do something else. Just throw out throw out a job title. You think Derek Lewis is shooting more right now? Uh, UPS office manager. See, I was at least going to go like social media guru, something like that. Social media coordinator. You know what? Co-main event podcast. You know what they say? He doesn't pay, <laughs> but considering an internship. Uh, the trick is to find what you already love to do and turn that into a job. And see, right. that's... then you end up hating what you love to do. Right? There you that's, go. There that's you go. That's how that works out. Next question this week comes to us from El Guapo. So Boss Rudin, I assume. He writes, as I sit here, several whiskeys into my evening, reflecting upon the wondrous, wonderful fight card that was Fight Night 110, there are several questions flowing through my mind. Derek Brunson, how could you destroy the sneaky old man Dan Kelly in such devastating fashion? Now, who will my father vicariously live through? Have you no shame? That was a little sad. A little sad to watch. This, is a, this isn't just a co-main event podcast gimme question. There's actually, considering everything that's happening, no real reason for us to talk about Derek Brunson versus Dan Kelly from like two weeks ago. But we're going to do it anyway, because... Dan Kelly, a personal favorite of mine, a personal favorite of this show, seemed like the kind of guy that would go out there 
uh, you know, into his forties, into his, into his late thirties, just with every, you know, normally exposed piece of skin wrapped up in some kind of neoprene sleeve or ace bandage. Yeah. And yet continually beat these fighters that, uh, it seemed like he probably shouldn't beat as an underdog. The run comes to a screeching halt. Not enough uh, braces, not enough joint braces in this one, I think. First round KO in a minute and 16 seconds at the hands of Derek Brunson that, if nothing else, uh, maybe reinforces the idea that that Derek Brunson still has something for the middleweight division despite his own back-to-back losses against Robert Whitaker uh, and then Anderson Silva uh, to sort of end last year and then begin this year. Uh Maybe it was a quality of opponent issue, but Derek Brunson comes out there against Dan Kelly and looks as dangerous as all get out. Although for Dan Kelly, let's say he's lost two fights as a professional now. One was to Sam Alvey, where he got TKO'd in like 49 seconds, first minute, first round. And then he goes on a four-fight win streak after that. And then this similar thing happens to him here, minute, 16 seconds, but in the first round. So no reason he can't reel off four or five more after this. Well, and I think the lesson to be learned here is that if you're going to get Dan Kelly out of there, you got to do it early yeah. before the old man wilds start to take on momentum because that's a snowball situation. Once an old man makes himself at home, you're not going to catch up with that. It's like anybody, too sneaky, anybody too wily, has played you too know, much strategy. Just like pick up basketball against the old dude who's got like a brace on every single joint in yes. his body. You and don't just, want that guy to get his shot going. No, you you let him find his spot and start banking it. Off of his, his his corner there and forget about it. Just pick up your stuff and go home. Well, we got the middleweight division now, Ben, where uh, Bobby Knuckles, a.k.a. Robert Whitaker, is about to fight uh, the Cuban cookie monster, Yoel Romero, for an interim title. And, of course, Michael Bisping uh, still rolling around the British Isles with the actual UFC middleweight championship around his waist. By the British Isles, you mean like Orange County? Yes. Yeah, probably. Okay. He's got to make it to those uh, UFC tonight tapings. That's wherever right. Wherever those are. Yeah. Uh, what's, what do you think is the future for a guy like Derek Brunson? Who's, you know, uh, still kind of right there in his athletic prime at 33 years old and had those two losses, but then reasserts himself here against Dan Kelly. Uh, is he a guy who you're talking about as number one contender for the interim title, depending on whether or not Mike Bisping is to, is going to hang around, wait for George St. Pierre or whatever he might be doing. I say Derek Brunson reels off several more wins. All of them impressive, uh, keeps, Trying to make his case for a UFC title shot, doesn't get it, signs with Bellator. Wow. Calling it now. That's specific. Yeah. Somebody I'm, I hope somebody is is recording this. <laughs> I'm uh I'm saying like a what we're looking at a, a Lorenz Larkin type situation. Okay. Well, I mean, there you go. Next question this week comes to us from Danielle Na. She writes, I can't for the life of me understand the UFC actively murdering the men's flyweight division and propping up the wilted carcass of the women's uh, featherweight at the same time. I love seeing more women in the UFC, but having to watch uh, your first champ cheat her way to the belt in order to drop it like a hot potato moments later is a horrendous start. Yet they plow forward with Cyborg versus Anderson and they drag Demetrius Johnson through the mud. The only reason I can think of for starting this division is WME IMG is banking hard on creating cults of personality and they're expecting Cyborg to fulfill that in some way and they think that uh, Demetrius Johnson cannot. Both Cyborg and DJ deserve immense respect for their skills and I think both of the paths that the UFC has taken with each of these fighters has been highly disrespectful. Maybe these things don't uh, warrant comparison but they are extremes to me that make little long-term sense does this warrant discussing uh, i'm gonna come out and say yes 
Danielle, it does warrant discussing. And Ben, there's a lot of stuff going on in here. In this particular email, there's a lot of stuff going on right now uh, on this topic in the uh, in the UFC landscape. Uh, And maybe we might as well just start with what happened. uh, Was it today or yesterday? The UFC officially came out and stripped Jermaine Durandamy today, Monday of the uh, UFC women's featherweight title. And it's going to go ahead and have uh, Chris Cyborg fight. Is it Megan Anderson? Yes. The Invicta women's featherweight champion. Uh, we think at UFC 214, correct? That's the plan. They're going to, so they're going to crown a new champ, which seems like not only pushing the reset button on the women's 145 pound division, but almost like, uh, we're calling a, uh, like a do over, like a weren't ready kind of thing. We're like the first, maybe we just take the eraser to the whiteboard and erase Jermaine Durandamy versus Holly Holm entirely and just say, here we go. We're starting a women's featherweight division. I would be amenable to that suggestion. I can't think of anybody who has made worse career moves than Jermaine Durandamy at this point. Just when you thought the world was at her fingertips. Well, you know, when you go out there, you get this title shot basically because Cyborg is not ready to fight, right? So then you go out there, you, you bend a rule or two, you win the fight, you're champion. Now you're in charge. Now you're in a, a... a good position. It'd be hard to screw it up. You'd have to try to screw up that position. And that's what she does. Yeah. Uh, and then today, after she gets stripped of the title, she comes out with her own uh, statement that she released and, and some comments saying that she was, quote unquote, shocked or surprised that she got stripped of the title. Uh, and when I saw that news fly across my Twitter timeline, I thought to myself, really? Yeah. Because I don't think anybody else is really that surprised. Well, and the statement put out by her management before, uh, was basically like, hey, she's not going to fight Cyborg, um, and she's going to wait and see what the UFC does in response to that. If they'll strip her, fine. She'll go back to 135 and fight there. So you're basically saying, like, I've taken my stand, and I await my consequences. And then when the obvious consequences show up, you don't get to be that surprised. Especially, it just seems like uh, so many mixed messages here because immediately after the fight, it was, Hey, now you can fight cyborg, right? Well, I don't know my hand, my hand might need surgery. And then my hand says a storm is rolling. That's right. And then after that, you want to take a principled stand. No, I won't fight her because of her, her past, uh, failed drug tests, which we, as we noted before on the podcast, were that the case, you just would have said that to begin with. Yeah. Uh, and you know, if that's going to be your principled stand, then when the UFC says, all right, you won't fight this person who we think is the number one contender and who is obviously the only person in the division that anybody cares about. Uh, I guess you ought to be willing to go down with your ship there. That's the the choice you made. It shouldn't really be a surprise to you. Uh, I just don't see like what, what does Jermaine Durandamy think the end game is here now? Because you go down to 135 now. You think the UFC wants you to get anywhere near a belt? <laughs> you You will have to... Murder everybody in the 135-pound division like you're just going around choking babies in their cribs until there's nobody left. Until, you know, you, you killed off the entire royal family so that you are de facto crowned the new ruler. That's the only way it's going to happen. Yeah. And it's not as though the UFC is an organization that is known to have a long memory when displeased, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, and, like, you're not exactly, you know... This would be a good opportunity with kind of resentment toward the UFC running a little high, uh, you know, feelings uh, against past dopers uh, running pretty strong. 
if you've played it right, you could maybe rally fans on your side, but she did the exact opposite here. Everybody's just glad to see her get pushed out of the way so that now we can get a fight that we want to see. Right. And let's, let's reference the other part of Danielle Na's question here, and that is the statement that the UFC uh, released saying that it was stripping Jermaine Durand me because she didn't, she refused to fight the number one contender. And it was kind of like the way that the UFC said it was sort of a broad based champions need to fight the number one contenders in their respective weight classes. And it was, it was, uh, posited on social media and elsewhere that, Hey, maybe as we strip Jermaine Durand me here, the UFC is also sending a message to other champions than the, you know, e- even ironically, because it seems like, the thing that is going on with Demetrius Johnson is actually the exact opposite. The thing. exact opposite. It was still posited on social media. Are we trying to send a message also to men's flyweight champion Demetrius Johnson here? Well, and it like it, you asked me, the UFC should have just left that sentence out because you are inviting a lot of uh, people to point out the hypocrisy kind of of your statement. Because whenever you, you say like UFC maintains, you know, basically this is a, a company wide policy supplies to everybody, not just in this situation, not just in select situations. Any champion is expected to uh, accept fights with the top contenders. And we can look at at least two champions right now. And I guess where you can where you get your wiggle room is that word accept. Um, they have to be offered the fight before they can accept it. But Conor McGregor basically said after he won the lightweight title, like, you know, don't at me. I'm, <laughs> I'm busy right now. I'm going on paternity leave. And then when he comes off paternity leave, he's going straight into a boxing match. And you know, the UFC is not going to strip him of his title. They want to have that, you know, UFC belt thing involved. Uh, and then you got Michael Bisping, who he's had one title defense so far, and it was against a guy who was nowhere near the top contender spot. Um, you know, gonna fight another guy who wasn't even a middleweight. Uh, then when that looked like it wasn't happening, now he's, you know, gonna wait and see what happens with this interim title fight kind of thing. And so it makes it look like you, what you're saying is that nobody else gets to decide if they don't want to fight the top contender. We get to decide that though, if we think it'll be more profitable for us, uh, to put him against somebody else. And it, that just, especially if you throw the integrity of the sport in our face, you know, that we're doing this in order to, quote, maintain the integrity of the sport, a lot of people are going to look at it and be like, it seems like you, when it suits you, when you think you can make more money the other way, are very happy to ignore the integrity of the sport. Let's talk also a little bit about Chris Cyborg versus Megan Anderson. Uh, Chris Cyborg, obviously a fighter that has had her own ups and downs with the UFC and kind of throws it in their face publicly. It seems like every time uh, she feels disrespected or feels like the UFC can't find her a fight or hasn't found her a fight. And I guess you also got to give credit to the Invicta women's featherweight champion, Megan Anderson, who uh, has given every indication that she has been down to fight Cyborg Justino from day one. Uh, in a world where it seems somewhat difficult to find a matchup for the most feared 145 pound woman on the planet. I mean, she said she'll, she'll fight her for the right amount of money. I think that was her. Right, which is what, if you're a professional fighter, is kind of the whole point of the Well, thing. and that's the way to play it, I think. And that's, if Jermaine Durandamy wanted to, like, if she wanted to avoid the fight with some dignity, maybe a way to do it would be like, I need a huge pay increase. Um, cause Megan Anderson had said before, like, that, you know, she wasn't too excited about the prospect of a fight with, with Cyborg right now. Uh, and then when asked to kind of elaborate on that, said something to the effect of like, well, I need to make more money if I'm going to go ahead and take right. that fight right now, which I think, reasonable position. Wasn't she talking about fighting her in, in Invicta at the time? Like this was. Uh, or I think she was talk- maybe talking about fighting her for whatever money she was making in Invicta. Right, right. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, and it's also a, 
it shows you where the UFC's thinking is here because Cyborg is one of the few reliable draws you have right now in women's MMA. You know, with Ronda Rousey not around anymore, uh, Cyborg is somebody you know people are interested in. And you can put her, you know, you put her on a fight card like UFC 214, which already has some good stuff going for it. Um, that's money in your pocket right there. And so obviously the UFC is going to look to do that. Uh, and I think if you're Megan Anderson, there's kind of no downside here. Like you, you go out well, there. Well, okay. Come on. I mean, there's, you know, there's the downside of getting, getting your whole shit broke, right. which everybody deals with, uh, that possibility when they fight cyborg. But if she goes out there and, and gets her whole shit broke, you know, as like an eight and two fighter and her, you know, she's 27. It's not like, there you go, that's a career dead end for you. I mean, you know, you right. can, you I mean, can bounce back She's from coming that. into the UFC, uh, we think probably as the co-main event of what is going to be a pretty big pay-per-view, I would think, uh, and get this exposure. She's 27 years old. She has an eight and two professional record. So like, uh, you know, not the most experienced fighter in the world, kind of just getting started depending on how things go against Cyborg Justino. And I guess as a caveat to that, Things have gone just terribly for everyone <laughs> yes. who's fought her. Like this could be uh, a, a big break for Megan Anderson, and we hope that we mean that in a positive way and not in a whole literal shit broke way. Yeah. break kind of way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, why not at this point? I guess. And you know what? Uh, as a side note, I mentioned it on Twitter, but kudos to Invicta for continuing to make chicken salad out of chicken shit, as Brock Lesnar would say, by having. Uh, Tanya Evinger jump up and wait uh, and go on and, and fight for that 145-pound spot because uh, you got to figure out something if you're Invicta and you keep losing fighters like this whenever you get somebody with a little bit of a name and a little bit of momentum and you think like, oh, well, here's another bummer for Invicta. And then they go, well, we've got this bantamweight champ who is uh, you know popular among hardcores and who the UFC just obstinately doesn't want. Let's see if we can use her here too. And right away too, they they managed to, to pull this switcheroo. So Good on them for figuring that one out. Right. And, and Invicta continues to be in a strange position. Uh, you know, kind of a double edged sword for them in having this, uh, talent share agreement and a spot on, on the fightpass.com, which obviously brings uh, a lot of attention to Invicta and makes it really easy for fight fans to find their broadcasts, uh, and watch them. But also, as you said, every time they get someone with a little bit of momentum, every time they get a little something, something going, uh, the UFC is always going to swoop down and take those fighters away because that's the business that the UFC is in. And all of those fighters, like every fighter in the world, just wants to be in the UFC. There's probably, you know, maybe with the exception of Tanya Evinger, uh, there's probably never going to be like a dominant Invicta champion who is like, no, I'm good where I am. Right. Yeah. They're, they're always going to want to make the jump. Well, and if you're an Invicta, if you, you know, you... you What's your other option there is to tell them like, okay, no, we're keeping this one. You'll piss off the UFC and you'll piss off the fighters. You don't want to be that organization in if you're in Victor's situation to say like, hey, we're going to hold this one back because nobody's going to like you then. Uh, it's the lesser of all evils, I guess, is to let them go when the UFC makes the call and then try to figure out a backup plan afterwards. And so far, Victor has done... Like, kind of amazing job at figuring out those backup plans and looking around the roster and saying, all right, who do we have to work with? We'll work with them rather than just trying to hold on to what you got. All right. Our next listener mail question, somewhat related to the uh, conversation we we're just having about the women's featherweight division. And that's, this one comes from Dale Derringer, uh, who writes, 
Guys, I remember a few weeks ago when you talked about how Alexander Gustafson had hit a rough patch, but was suddenly back in the driver's seat at light heavyweight with his win over Glover. Now I'm wondering if the same thing is true for Holly Holm. She looked kind of down and out after she lost three straight fights, but now she knocked out Betch Cohia and seems like she has some pretty good options. She could fight the winner of Nunes versus Shevchenko, or she could fight the winner of Cyborg versus Anderson. Am I crazy? Or is the preacher's daughter back in the mix, in all caps, as Dana Dane would say? So Ben, obviously we had Holly Holm come out uh, at UFC Fight Night 111 this past weekend from Singapore and defeat Betch Kohea by third round KO in the main event of that card uh, at women's bantamweight, uh, which is uh, obviously at 135 pounds when... Aside from this, Holly Holm's most recent fight was the loss to Jermaine Durandamy at 145 pounds. And so, again, kind of a lot of stuff going on here as well, not the least of which is underscoring the lack of depth at women's featherweight that Holly Holm goes up and fights for the title uh, and then immediately drops back down to 135. But now she has this victory over uh, Betch Kohia, which, if nothing else, ended in emphatic fashion and so uh i don't know man it seems right to me to think that she now has a situation where she might be able to write her own ticket because uh despite those three losses that she had in a row i feel like a fight between her and amanda noons probably still sells and or a fight between her and chris cyborg or megan anderson uh might be the best you can do at 145 as well you know what you write though to say how uh ending in emphatic fashion that one is really important here i think because it was from singapore at like eight o'clock in the damn morning you know that fight card it if it doesn't go very well for you at the end like or if you know you win a decision if you if you win by like guillotine choke say betchko has shoots in you get her in a guillotine choke and it's one of those slow squeezes kind of thing where everybody's like is it in is it in? i'm not sure i don't know if you got oh no she's tapping you got it that does not make the gifts my friend and if you don't make the gifts right. with a, off a fight card like this, who's going to see it? Uh, you know, you had to either be willing like to just like wake up and watch the thing live or, you know, to hear enough good things about it to go back and look it up. But you get this head kick finish, sit her down, have her like raising up her hand like, please, may I have a moment? And then you come on with the left hand and say, no, uh, that makes for a, a finish that can be kind of passed around on social media and then even though a bunch of people i'm sure skipped this event for very good reasons they still know what you did and right. and they like okay holly home is back right uh so it's almost best case scenario that they didn't watch the rest of this fight that all yes. they know is like oh holly home kicked betch go hey in the right in the face yeah they all missed right. the part where mark Godard brings them in and and begins his speech with i respect the game plan which is when you know there's a butt coming right uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think that you're right that Holly Holm still, when, when she can pull off finishes like this, it reminds people, oh yeah, I remember when she kicked Ronda Rousey upside her damn head and gets people excited about seeing her again. I just question whether she can keep pulling that off against a variety of style of fighters. I think like Amanda Nunes would actually be a good matchup for her because as we've seen, she kind of needs somebody super aggressive who's yeah. going to come after her in order to make it happen. Otherwise, she ends up doing the thing she does where she jumps forward, says, hup, hup, uh, throws two punches that come like within three inches of your face but don't quite hit you, then bounces right back out again and does the whole thing over and over for the next three rounds. And that doesn't get people super excited. If you get somebody who will run up in her face and then she can do the, the stuff she's capable of doing, then she's an exciting fighter to watch. Yeah, and like we've talked about before, Holly Holm has this kind of weird thing where despite the fact that she is among the most impressive athletes in all of women's MMA, like, 
she has a tendency to either fight up or down to her competition, it seems to me, and she she's also way more effective, as we've seen, when you fight her like Ronda Rousey tried to fight her, which is you run out of your corner and try to get super aggressive with her, and then she uses her lifelong kickboxing skills to pick you apart uh, and eventually rearrange your face. Uh, and I guess credit Betch Kohea here, maybe, for knowing that and coming out, because Betch Kohea is historically also a very aggressive fighter. But she comes out in this fight and has maybe a slightly different game plan, which earns both kudos and a pep talk from referee Mark Goddard halfway through, where she's going to make Holly Holm do the work and, and make Holly Holm get this fight started. And so while it didn't seem like Betch Kohea was going to jump up and win this thing anytime soon, like, you know, for, for two and two rounds plus one minute, uh, she was there with Holly Holm. Uh, and, you know, certainly not looking completely out of her depth until, until the very end. But yeah, that does bring up an interest, the interesting thing about Holly Holm, which is that she sometimes struggles if, if she's the one that has to lead the dance. But like you just said, I think either of these potential fights for her against Amanda Nunes, assuming she beats, uh, Shevchenko in their fight or against Chris Cyborg, assuming she beats Megan Anderson, those are both fighters that have styles of fights where they, styles of fighting where they are known to come out and be aggressive and get right in your face, which for Holly Holm is exactly what you want. Except I'm a little worried by the, I saw on Twitter uh, from our buddy Ariel Helwani, a remark from Holly Holm's longtime manager, Lenny Fresquez, talking about how now what they wait for is their rightful title shot at either 135 or 145. And it's like, bro, she lost three in a row and she won one against Betch Kohea. Uh, maybe... Let's slow down on the rightful title shot as if you've been somehow like wronged and denied for all this time when like, I don't know if snapping a three fight losing streak, uh, you're, you know, you got somehow you got a title shot off of a two fight losing streak. Should be kind of glad about that. Uh, maybe win another one before we start acting like we're somehow uh, being overlooked by the UFC. Uh, yeah, in a way, but at the same time. Considering the era that we are now in, the WMEIMG era, where uh, money over everything, uh, who who better than Holly Holm is going to get the the next title shot in one of those two divisions? I mean, at featherweight, we don't know if there even is anyone else hanging around up there. And if you can install Holly Holm into a fight against Chris Cyborg, which is uh, probably the fight they wanted to make to begin with. It's probably three fight losing streak. Be damned! Yeah. You're in there. It preacher's daughter. Doesn't it seem like every time a, a cyborg fight has been brought up to Holly Holmes' people, that's when suddenly that 145 doesn't sound like such a great idea anymore? It seems like they've gone back and forth on it. Like I, they said they would do it when there was no 145 pound division. I think is what happened. And they wanted to do a catch weight. Is what it was. And so now here we are. We have the opportunity. But if you're going to come out and say you're waiting for your rightful title shot in one of those two divisions. I would think the one that you have the better chance of of landing is the uh, the division where you may be the only other fighter. <laughs> That's a good point. And then again, you'll, but you look at bantamweight, right? Amanda Nunes against Valentina Shevchenko is going to happen. Uh, you, I guess you got Juliana Pena, Raquel Pennington, Sarah McMahon, or Kat Zingano. Probably likely going to get the winner of that unless Ronda Rousey pushes, like, kicks open the swinging saloon doors and announces her return. Uh, what if Gina Carano is like, Ronda Rousey's uh, Apollo Creed in Rocky Three. She's training her. She's like, I can help you get back there to where you were, champ. They're running on the beach together. All that kind of stuff. Yeah, I sure. I think we got something Oh, I'm here. with you. Yeah. Let's take it straight to the box office. I just think 
if you're Holly Holm, like that's cl- clearly if if you're Holly Holm's manager, you're putting it in a in a stringent way. You're putting it in the most superlative possible way that you can. And and uh, Holly Holman's man management and the UFC have have not been the greatest of friends throughout her career. And I think that's you know credit to her management team for actually asking the UFC for shit, which makes the UFC mad. Yeah. But like <laughs> I don't know. I think they, they they got a point personally. You're just you're saying in a very emphatic way there if you're. Uh, Holly Holmes manager. The next question this week comes to us from Kevin Stianchi, who spelled out his name phonetically for us. He knows. Helps. He knows who he's dealing with. He writes, as you are both aware, former UFC fighter Tim Hag died this weekend after being repeatedly knocked down and then knocked out in a boxing match. The fight was a pretty obvious mismatch from start to finish, and it was clear by their records that it would be a mismatch. Discuss this tragedy, please. And of course, Ben, this this news just broke in the last couple of days. Uh Tim Hag passed away after this boxing match, I believe, up there in uh, Edmonton. Is that where we were yes. for this? Yeah. Uh, in Canada, which is obviously a huge uh, tragedy and a very sad thing to, to happen to a guy who, uh, despite the fact that he had already been kind of in and out of the UFC, uh, comparatively speaking, was still a very young man. And so to see his life cut short is the is the kind of thing that we never want to see have happen and also kind of a stark reminder about the the physical stakes that we're dealing with here in combat sports and about how there is never really a, a freebie or an easy an easy night or an easy fight uh the, this sort of like very uh dangerous and and potentially life-ending life life-altering stakes are pretty much always there for these athletes well did you watch this fight i have not i don't know that i have a lot of interest in seeing it well you should see it because it's it's a reminder of just all how a bunch of little things going wrong or a bunch of people not doing uh, like a little thing that they can do adds up to a big problem. Because, I mean, I think he goes down like three times in the first round in this fight. And you look at it, you I mean, one thing like the record disparity, that, that was a, a good point here made by uh, Kevin Stianchi because I think – uh, Adam Braidwood, the guy who beat him, I think he came in like seven and one. Uh, Tim Haig, I think came in like one and two. And this reminds me of another point made by Michael David Smith. Where we were talking about the Conor McGregor Floyd Mayweather fight. Um, people complaining, you know, why is Conor McGregor able to get licensed to fight a guy who's 49 and 0 when he has no pro boxing fights? Um, and him saying, you know, I'm not too worried about that guy getting hurt. I'm worried when you see a guy who's, seven and zero against a guy who is you know one and two that kind of stuff like that's the disparity where people really get hurt and i think you see it in this one because you can see early on uh that there is a big skill disparity um he gets dropped several times in the first round and you keep just waiting like for the referee to say okay that's enough there have been plenty of opportunities from it or for his corner between rounds after he goes back to his corner after the first round for them to say okay that we, we've seen enough of this uh and they don't. And it's kind of like everybody abdicates this little part of their responsibility to look out for fighter safety. And the end result is that a guy dies. And, you know, I'm sure it wasn't anything like super glaring where they looked at it and they, th- they thought that, you know, that anybody did a huge thing wrong. But if enough people do little things wrong, then that's when really bad shit happens. And this is a great example of that. Yeah, and there's been some questions about the Edmonton Athletic Commission in the past, if I'm not mistaken. I think uh, MMA reporter Mike Russell has written about it in the past that that the uh, the Edmonton Commission doesn't, you know, isn't isn't seen as as the the A plus commission up there in Canada. And then you have a situation like this where a 34 year old man like Tim Haig, uh passes away because of of uh, this boxing match. 
uh, which you know brings all that stuff back to the to the forefront and raises all these new questions about the athletic commission there and the idea of fighter safety and and dear lord, uh, you know I obviously know nothing about professional boxer Adam Braidwood, but uh, you got to think that this will affect him also uh, in, in a psychological way since you know nobody wants to have this happen uh, in sports, but from a, a I guess an MMA centric point of view. Uh, the loss of a guy like Tim Haig, who, uh, you know, made several appearances in the UFC back in the 2009, 2010, but uh, had been around the sport a lot longer than that. And, and even even after uh, exiting the UFC after a loss to Joey Beltran at UFC 113 in 2010, continued to, to fight professionally in a number of organizations, World Series of Fighting, uh, King of the Cage, uh, some, you know, absolute championship uh, and then ended up ending his career, or hasn't fought, I guess you could say, since July 2016, uh, and ended on a one and four streak where uh, all of those losses were either KOs or TKOs. Uh, and now uh, he's 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 dead, which is a a, a huge, obviously bummer, and a, a, to me a reminder that that uh, like the, this you gotta you gotta respect the the not only the athletes, but you got to respect the consequences of the sport. You know, and this obviously is not the time to have the discussion about the safety uh, differences between MMA and boxing, but it is uh, some example of how boxing can be more dangerous if uh, you're not paying attention uh, to fighter safety because a guy gets dropped, he gets a chance to get up and clear his head. You know, you watch this fight. If this was an MMA fight, it probably would have been over in the first round just because he's woozy and he gets dropped a couple times and the guy would have jumped on him. Uh, and kind of the rules of boxing helped allow this one to continue uh, more than it would have probably under MMA rules. Um, but it's also, I'm sure, going to be like just a reminder to a lot of people. Like we we have a tendency sometimes to forget this stuff, like just like we were doing earlier today. We're just like, okay, well, what do they have to lose in this fight? Well, you're in a fight. Somebody's trying to punch you in the damn head. There's always a lot to potentially lose. Last question this week comes to us from Markel Fultz. And I know this one. Yeah. Former college basketball player university of washington that's I right think. a husky uh current hopeful in the nba draft yeah we're glad that he could take time out of whatever training regimen he's on to send a question to the podcast probably just uh did a thousand free throws which is still how they warm up or like train right i like how your concept of what you do to get ready for the nfl draft is like 1965 ish yeah nba draft yeah but uh yeah a thousand free throws 100 layups mm-hmm. some suicides Mm-hmm. Yeah, set shots. Probably working on your set shots and your bounce passes. You know, a lot of like those practices, like in, like in Hoosiers, where you don't even need a ball. You know, <laughs> swinging gate. They're gonna run the swinging gate. Running between folding metal chairs and stuff like that. Uh, he writes, "Why is the main event Kiesa versus Lee? Is Kiesa's mom going to be at the event? Can't wait for July eighth. These cards are getting annoying. Don't so you fucking talk about his mom, Mark Helfel. Don't you fucking talk about Mike Kiesa's mom. Don't you fucking do it." He will not have it. So, Ultimate Fight Night 112 this weekend from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, the Chesapeake Are Energy Arena. Are we, we're doing this on Sunday? Is that what this is? Or is this yes, on Saturday night? that's June 25th is Sunday, right? All right, so is mark it? your calendar. Well, you got Bellator on Saturday, so uh, we're going get, to get ready and do this on yeah. Sunday night, it looks like. Uh, and as we talked about before, Ben, Michael Chiesa versus Kevin Lee kind of an out there main event, an, an unexpected main event, I guess you could say, maybe an underwhelming main event just in terms of pure star power. 
Uh, but for me personally, as I have said on this podcast, you go out there, get in a mom-related scuffle on the stage at the UFC summer kickoff press conference, and then get escorted out because Kevin Lee is throwing them bungalows up there. Uh, Dressed like Macho Man Randy Savage. Yeah, yes. You got me. I'm in for this. I am ready for this grudge match, even though I'm still going to say that this physical altercation on stage between Michael Chiesa and Kevin Lee was so weird. And Michael Chiesa's response to Kevin Lee, not even saying something negative really about his mom, was so weird. It almost seems premeditated and or staged to me. If you were going to premeditate it, you would do it a little better than that. I, I Yeah, like... Right? Hopefully? You would think. It would I mean, be like an actual your mom burn. It wouldn't be like his mom has tickets, which, you know, Markel Fultz, taking time out of his preparations uh, for, for the NBA, points out, um, is Kiesa's mom going to the event? That's a very good question, because if she is going to the event, then if you're Kiesa, you have to step back and realize, wait a minute, I got all fired up over a factual statement. <laughs> That is like a of neutral kind of like value statement that Kevin Lee made where he said, I know his mama's got tickets. If she does in fact have tickets, then what did you really get mad about? Right. And maybe, maybe who knows what Kevin Lee was going to say. Maybe he was going to say, maybe we can all meet up for a nice brunch. Yeah. Before or after the fight. Therefore, I, I hope I will also invite my relatives and then maybe... Uh, the, the bunch of us can, can get a really big take. We can get them to push a couple tables together at Applebee's so that we can all sit together. Now, see, here's what I'm talking about though, Ben, like this is an underwhelming main event. This is not the, like featuring two guys that you would think of as classic UFC main eventers. I don't feel like it's that far outside the realm of possibility that either Michael Chiesa merely thought to himself, I got to make something happen here. I'm going to jump on the first thing he says that gives me the opportunity to like uh, to either get in his face or create a, some tension or whatever. Or, you know, I don't even think it's outside the realm of possibility that someone told them like, hey, you guys, let's uh, let's do a little promotion here. This, you know, you guys, if you guys are going to go out and main event this card on Fox Sports one. You guys wanted to do well. We all wanted to do well. Let's let's do something. Let's give the fans something. And then Michael Chiesa is just waiting. And the first thing that happens is. His mom has got tickets, and then Michael Chiesa. Well, and you heard Kevin Lee say the UFC wasn't exactly enraged at him for throwing that punch. So there you go. Which, by the way... Building a case over here. Um, so why, again, was it a huge deal when Cyborg punched uh, uh, Angela Magana? That one, we got to get like the DAs involved, uh, and we're waiting to find out where the district attorney's going to come down on it. This one, punch the guy at a press conference, you know, when we got a good camera angle of it, and uh, not a big problem. You know what I'm always amazed by is the ability of uh, civilian security guards to hold back the, the professional mixed martial arts fighters from getting in each other's faces. They're, they hire some pretty big dudes. They I don't do, know if but if them. you go back and watch the tape of this, if either of these dudes kind of wanted to get away from the guy that's holding them back, it always looks to me like they could probably do it. I mean, through sheer athleticism, if nothing else. It's not like they got well, a bunch of Dave also, Schollers running around out there. They got well, this some hefty dudes. This isn't like the Conor McGregor, Nate Diaz, or yeah, Nate Diaz press conference where Dave Schaller brought the Brothers of Destruction, right? <laughs> as his personal bodyguards, because we were at the UFC gym in Torrance, and it looked like Dave Schaller brought WWE Tag Team Champions circa 1994 to basically stand on either side of him. Which is the way I'd play it. 
How did, did has Schaller been in any brawls now that he's over at the working for the Sixers? Has he had to separate Joel Embiid or and anybody else? That's wow. a guy, right? You said that with such confidence. I follow him on Instagram. Sounds like things are going really well over there. I imagine which, it's probably a pretty easy assignment. Yeah, I, especially after after you've been tossed across the stage by John Jones and dealing with uh like the kind of just formalized and and professional NBA probably seems like a breeze. Well, that's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you've got a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That gets you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording this podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. It's short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. If you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. Now, Ben, here's where things get interesting for the listeners. Oh, yeah? Because we're about to kick off round number one. Will we go straight into it? Will you need to download a second part? We don't even know yet. <laughs> yeah. This will be a surprise to all of us. So let's stay tuned. Find out. Maybe this uh, maybe this part of the podcast just ends, or maybe uh, maybe we just start talking again for round number one. Who knows? It's a mystery. It's a mystery.